you have a Bible, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, very familiar passage if you've been a Christian for any amount of time or around Christianity, uh, maybe around Christmas time, a little more familiar at that time. But we have in Ephesians, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, where, well, we can go back to verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, or but emptied himself, is a better translation, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Paul, in 1 Timothy 3.16, says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Last week I preached two sermons on that theme, going through sections in the Gospel of John, then going over to the epistles um, to show you what this incarnation of the Son of God looks like in Scripture terms, and we tried to put things Together. And the Word became flesh, John 1.14. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. This doctrine, this teaching of incarnation is one of the great doctrines that distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. The other one is Trinity. This one is incarnation. These are very distinctly and distinguishingly Christian doctrines contained in the written word of God, confessed by uh, true Christians throughout all the centuries of Christ's church. And the word became flesh. Massive words Massive meaning to those words. These statements and many others brought about what we call the doctrine of, or the scriptural teaching of, the incarnation of the Son of God. The eternal Son assumes, takes to himself a real human nature, body and soul, yet without sin. Now, our church confesses gladly, confesses this doctrine in these words, the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very God, did, when the fullness of time was come, take unto him man's nature. That's a very Christian confession, that statement. It's in chapter 8, paragraph 2. 
This doctrine is the cause of line two of, O come all ye faithful, hymn number 151. Listen to line two, God of God, light of light, lo, he, God of God, light of light, is a person, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God, begotten, not created. Is that the version you usually hear at the storefront in December? That, that line's usually cut out. It is the most Christian line in the entire hymn. God of God, do you hear the ancient creeds there? Light of light, lo, like, check this out. He, who is God of God and light of light, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created. Note these words. He abhors not the virgin's womb, and the word became flesh. Where do you think he got that thought from? Probably reading the Gospel of John, right? The Son of God took unto him man's nature. Or how about this? Paul, Paul puts... John 1.14 in slightly different words when he says this. This is 2 Corinthians 8.9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, there's a little pushback on the translation there. Let me say it very literally. That though being rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That, though, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So his poverty is our glory, actually. What puts us above the other creatures? We are humans created in the image of God, body, soul, rational faculties, able to put things together and conclude and worship and praise God. So that is our, actually, that's our glory. It's his poverty to become one of us. He comes into the poverty-stricken world, assumes our nature in order that we might be brought to some degree of richness. Uh, But notice again these words. He... Being rich became poor. Now, the New King James says, though he was rich. So somebody might go, okay, he was rich, then he became non-rich. But if you say he being rich, some of you were at the conference, remember what Dr. Just call him Dr. D., what Dr. D said, being rich, divinity, became poor, humanity, we don't need you to leave your divinity back behind you and come in the flesh. We need you to bring your richness with you. He, being rich, never ceasing to be what he was, always was and is God, he assumes poverty, he assumes humanity. In order that we who are poverty-stricken in our sins 
creatures fallen in our sin might be become rich, not might become God, okay? So us becoming rich is not us becoming, you know, a fourth person in the Trinity, but we get Trinitarian beatitude, benediction, good stuff freely given to us so that we can now commune with God safely. So, why did the Son of God become flesh? To repair flesh and to take it to glory and many other sons to glory, right? Can we use the incarnation for Christian ethics? Is the incarnation only a fact, a theological fact, a doctrinal teaching of Scripture that has no bearing on the way we live? Well, that's not how Paul thought, huh? Have this mind in you just as the Lord Jesus Christ did, right? So he's, he's, it's an injunction, an, a, an ethical injunction. Here's the way you need to live, saints. And then he goes into this form of God, form of servant thing. So he actually uses the, in, the theology of incarnation to promote humility and godliness and love among the saints. So, thinking about the incarnation should affect not only our worship vertically, but it should affect the way we treat each other as well. Okay? So we're going to look at Philippians 2, primarily verses 6 through 8. Um, when I was a new Christian, Walter Martin was one of my heroes. You know, the Bi- was he the Bible answer man? Yeah, Walter Martin. And uh, especially around Christmas, he'd always be going toe-to-toe with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or, or, or Mormons on these issues. Um, and if you were listening way back in the 80s um, or to the other guy, you, you might have heard when this text comes up the word kenosis. Have you ever heard that before? If you haven't, you just heard it. Okay, It comes from a Greek word that we're going to look at here in a minute. He emptied himself. Okay, Kenosis. And I remember being a new Christian going... Uh, do you hold to the kenosis? You know, because I got a new word. Of course, I couldn't tell you what the various views are of this kenosis thing. I, I, I think I can now, but notice who being in the form of God. Now, there's a being. Remember, being rich? Paul's saying the same thing in another way. Being in the form of God did not consider it robbery. To be equal with God, so being in the form of God is the same thing as saying he's equal with God or he's equal with God or he's God, okay? But New King James says, made himself of no reputation. That follows the old King James. Um, But it is literally, but emptied himself. Kenosis is the empty thing word there. We'll, We'll get back there. Now, the the big question is, what in the world is this kenosis thing, emptying himself? Now, watch another I-N-G word here. Taking, okay, so he emptied himself. Taking, that's weird, huh? 
Because emptying, you think, gives up something. But he says, the emptying is actually a taking. This is divine condescension. This is form of God, equal with God, taking. That's the kenosis. The emptying is not a disrobing. Oh, the Son of God, in order to become flesh, had to disrobe, take off some divine garments. There were still his garments, but he hung them up in some closet in heaven in order to become one of us. Okay. Kenosis, that's what he did. He emptied himself. Okay, so that's the way some people read it. It's the way I used to read it. I don't think it's right. But notice, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we need to work through this here. Let's think through this. I hold what's a standard view. I think most, if not all of you, actually hold my view. You know why? Because even though you couldn't probably explain it, you sing it. And you, you have instincts in you not to say certain things, like the illustration I just gave of the second person of the Trinity disrobing, taking some garments off and hanging them up for a while in heaven, and then he doesn't put those clothes on, and you're going, no, 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 whatever this means, it can't mean that, right? Most of you were saying that. If you weren't saying that, you're thinking heretically. I didn't say you were a heretic. I said you're thinking heretically, and I'm, I'm here to disciple you in the truth, to help you stop the, that heretical thinking. Taking the form of a servant. So here we have uh, the standard view here is that the form of God language means the Son is equal with God. Or we could say, to be equal with God is to be the form of God. Now, don't get all caught up in, like, what, what physical form are we talking about? It's not what we're talking about here. It's just a technical word he uses. When we go to form of servant, okay, so we have form of God and form of servant here. We say humanity. When we, go, when we think of form of God, we say divinity, okay? Just, just leave it at that. Some of you know uh, the great Saint Augustine. He has wonderful section in his work on the Trinity on form of God, form of servant, form of God, form of servant. I have utilized that twofold way of thinking, those distinctions hundreds, if not thousands of times as the pastor of this church, without you even knowing where it came from. And Augustine would go, why are you putting me up on a pedestal? It's in Philippians. There's form of God. There's form of servant. There's very God. There's very man. It's all right there. And then you know what people did after Augustine wrote this about the same time. The good minds of of the patristics, they started doing this thing that has a technical phrase, Uh, that we attach to it. Does anybody want to hear this one? This is a weird one. It's called partitive exegesis. You go, partitive? What? Parts. Okay, distinguishing form of God, form of servant. If you were here last week, I did that for two hours or an hour and a half or whatever. So that's where that, now you know if you ever hear it. 
go, I knew what that meant. Partitive. Distinguishing. The, the divinity of our Lord and the humanity of our Lord and being very careful as I look and understand texts. So that's what we're trying to do here. Now, we have this form of God and form of servant, but we also have this other thing where it says, but made himself of no reputation, or but emptied himself, that's that word, kenosis. The nature of his kenosis, of his emptying, the, the whatness of it, is indicated by the next two clauses. If you look at the text, taking, I accentuated that, the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. So the kenosis is the assumption of flesh by the Son of God. Emptying is assuming, or emptying is becoming flesh. It is not something in the divinity of the Son being changed. Okay? That's kind of technical, but it's kind of not. Emptying is the becoming flesh. Kenosis is not something that happens in or to the divine nature. Let's assume it did, though. Something happens in or to the divine nature. So the divine nature of the Son goes from something and to something else. Does anybody like that view? We're going, wait a minute, God changes? Well, yeah, he's so sovereign, he can change himself. Some people teach that, that God can will mutations of himself. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God, okay? That's in the Bible, and we sing, um, great is thy faithfulness. There's a line in that song, I can't remember what it says, but uh, thou changest not. There you go. Um, there, um, James 1, 17, you know, the good gifts that come uh, from heaven. Uh, uh, there is no shadow of turning in the giver of those gifts. Gifts. Um, one of the Puritans commenting on that text said, there is no wrinkle upon the brow of eternity. Okay? You know, because you know what wrinkles tell us? You be changing. Okay? There's no be changing in God. There's no wrinkle, uh, a metaphor, uh, on the brow of eternity. So, um, so we don't want to say whatever the kenosis is, it washes back into the divinity, up to the divinity, out to the divinity, however you want to look at that, and, uh, and alters the divinity, changes it, causes it to be morphed. Um, we don't want to do that. But there's often a lot of fuzziness on, coming from this text. You're looking at a man that used to be fuzzy on this passage. I used to explain it fuzzily. Is that a word? It is now. In the mode of fuzziness. Of course, I didn't think I was fuzzy. I thought I was right. This is 
25, 30 years ago. Slowly but surely, as I started to dive, dive deeper, the well got deeper and broader, and I came to the conclusion, oh, I used to say things from this text that aren't true. So we have to be careful. And this fuzziness, uh, to justify my fuzziness, I was living in a culture, a theological culture um, of you know the last 150 years or so. And about 150 years ago, if anyone's of German descent, sorry, but the Germans, again, um, start doing something. I started saying kenosis means uh, that he emptied himself of his divinity. Okay? However you can do that. And so that is called kenoticism. You, You might have heard that before. It comes from this Greek word here. And it refers to a teaching that Orthodox people said, no, we're not, we're not saying, we're not doing that. The incarnation is not the son giving up his divinity. So then people said, but what did he empty himself of? So they're looking for something that he emptied himself of. And that's, that's what I grew up in, cut my teeth on, is this not full-blown heretical Kenoticism, where you deny the divinity of Christ somehow, some way, um, but what people call sub-kenoticism, or a form a form of kenoticism, and this has been around for like 150 years or so. But listen to uh, listen to somebody from the 20th century. The proposition God became man could convey the thought of kenosis sub. Traction or divestiture. Have you ever heard that? The son divested himself of divine prerogatives or something like that. That the son of God ceased to be what he was and exchanged divine identity for human. That divine attributes, prerogatives, and activities were surrendered or at least suspended in order that the human might be real and active. The various statements of Scripture are eloquent to the exclusion of such a conception. Okay? That's John Murray. Some of you know who he is. doesn't matter who he is. He's right. It's, scripture sounds like full-blown canonicism, but when you put the things together, you put the brakes on that, you go, well, um, maybe I can't articulate it clearly, but I know what I don't believe. Sometimes we do that. I don't know, I can't articulate all that I should believe, but I know what I don't believe. And I don't believe somehow, some way, the second person of the Trinity de-deified himself. So, so then evangelicals and reformed people in the commentaries on Philippians and in other books started, started to say, we're not going with the Germans, okay, at least the bad Germans on this. So they pushed back because they didn't like it. They didn't like the full-blown canonicism. So then you read commentaries, and I've read them, and I have them, from the late 19th century in through the 20th century and into the 20th century, otherwise solid men, they should have read John Gill. They should have read Matthew Henry. They should have read Matthew Poole. They should have read Calvin. They should have read 
the patristics because it was a one trumpet sound until about the 19th century distinguishing between form of God and form of servant. And then, instead of listening to the past and going, oh, um, they might have something to teach me after all. Okay? No chronological snobbery. We have computers. We can push a button and search like that. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you can do theology, right? doesn't mean you can put the pieces together in a harmonious, uh, you know, whole. So guys, the scholars, pushed back on this ugly form of canonicism, and they said stuff like this. The son, in becoming a man, did not give up his divine attributes, but willed to renounce the exercise of his divine powers, attributes, prerogatives, so that he might live fully within those limitations which inhere in being truly human. In this way, Christ's use of his divine attributes becomes potential or latent, present in Jesus in all their fullness, but no longer in exercise." Have you ever heard anything like that? I used to preach the Philippians that way. Guilty as charged. It's bad and dangerous, actually. Now, the guy I was quoting was critiquing this view, but he's quoting a famous commentator on the book of Philippians that guys like me have either the entire commentary set, if if you're him, you have it, Uh, Or you buy those commentaries when you preach through a book. So here's what he just said. This lighter form of canonicism, some people call it sub-canonicism, says, well, we, we, we don't want to say he's no longer form of God. He is form of God. But when he becomes form of man, he doesn't do certain divine things. He stops being the pure, perfect being that he was and puts some things in neutral. Because the guy uses the word still latent in Jesus, but only potential. They're there, but he doesn't exercise divine prerogatives. Now, it's, it's very easy to take this view and go, yeah, well, I don't know how to parse all that, but it looks like it. How could it be uh, omnipresent and in a body? Well, he could act by virtue of two natures. Listen to last week, right? If he just is the divine nature, subsisting as the Son, then he has to be omnipresent even though incarnate. Somebody shake their head. Yeah, give me. Somebody help me, as they say. Right? It's weird to us. It's strange. But remember the line? It would indeed be strange if God were not strange to us. Okay? It's a revealed mystery. But it is the teaching of Scripture. So we don't want to say, okay, this, uh, this emptying is this. The Son of God 
operates, okay, acts upon himself according to his divine nature, and he causes his divine nature to go in a non-operating mode, or only a here and here and now operating mode. Sometimes he acts by virtue of his divinity, uh, but other times just the Father and the Spirit are doing the God thing. We don't. We, please, we're we're not doing that either. If God is absolutely perfect, that is. Um, unchangeably perfect. Can't get any better, certainly can't diminish his blessedness, his, just the sheer, watch this one, the sheer weight of divinity. It's not an elastic thing. If that's what God is, then no operation upon God by outside agents can change God nor can God change God and remain God. He just became God light or God phase two or whatever. You see how important interpreting Philippians 2, how important it is to have a doctrine of God and the Trinity, to interpret Philippians 2, right? In other words, to have the rest of Scripture to help us. Because we already know, if you've read through the Bible, you know when you read Philippians, there's some things you, you don't want to say. No matter what the text says, you know that text can't mean that. He ceased being. He emptied himself of divine prerogatives and didn't do some things as God. But... While he was not operating as God, the Father operated as God, the Spirit operated as God. That means does things on the earth operated, okay? It's like, oh, so the Son did something to the Son in order for the Son not to be the Son that he always was? Remember the famous line? He became what he was not, never ceasing to be what he was and ever shall be God the Son, okay? That's important. Thank Athanasius or whoever said that. They got it from Scripture, by the way. So God doesn't operate upon himself. God is not a patient upon which anyone or thing acts and thereby is changed. So if we don't want to say those kind of things, what is this emptying? Okay, What it ain't? I just went through that. What it be, what it is. Now let me say this. The view I hold, the view I hold, has been handed down to me from a long time ago. I think it goes all the way back to the writers of the Old and New Testament. But it's the traditional Christian view. It's the high-octane view that says something like this, and I'm quoting a contemporary There is no identification in the text of something of which Christ emptied himself. We can't, in the text it doesn't say he emptied himself. This is the four things he got rid of. He got rid of omnipresence. He got rid of omniscience. He got rid of divine blessedness, pure Trinitarian bliss and happiness among the persons. 
It doesn't say that. There is, let me say that again, there is no identification in the text of something of which Christ emptied himself. So he says elsewhere, Paul actually explains the kenosis not by subtraction, but by assumption of the form of a servant. Did you get that? He emptied himself, not by subtraction. The Son of God did not operate, did not act, upon his divine nature in order to become incarnate. Wasn't subtract, that would be subtraction. And that would entail what? Mutability in God. God is so sovereign, he can will a change in divine operation. He can become passive or potent, uh, potential. The power to do is latent, it's still his, but he chooses not to do it. You know, in the Scottish guys, no, can he do? So this kenosis is not by subtraction, but by assumption of the form of a servant. He goes on, various exegetes still attempt to find something of which Christ emptied himself. For example, the exercise of certain divine attributes. He's got names attached to all these, but the names don't matter. You've heard some of this. Um, People are trying to find something of which the Son of God uh, subtracted, something subtracted from him in order to be really a form of servant. Christ emptied himself, for example, the exercise of certain divine attributes, lordship over the world, certain rights, privileges, or prerogatives that he once had, a position of equality with God that he once had, and uh, end of quote. So those are the views that he kind of traces down. However, the passage simply states, Philippians, that Christ emptied himself and then follows with two very important phrases, clauses, actually. He emptied himself taking. He emptied himself being made. So this taking and being made are explaining how or in what way Christ emptied himself. We could add the word by. By taking the form of a servant. By being made in the likeness of men. He being rich. Never ceasing to be rich. For him that means he being God. Became poor. This is the same language, same doctrine, different language. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Philippians 2, same author, human author, Paul. So by taking, by being made. Um, I have a quote here, I'll just say it. Thus, the son never became a stranger to himself. Only time I've quoted another German, Karl Barth, approvingly. If you don't know who he is, don't worry about it. But he's right. The son never became a stranger to himself. In other words, form of God did not act 
act upon form of God so that form of God would say, what happened to you? The incarnation is much more mysterious and greater than that. Okay? Because that would, that would, that would un-God. God would cease being all these things that he claims to be in the written word. Well, there's a lot of good questions that come as a result of you know, taking this kind of view of Philippians. Um, questions that often come with taking this understanding. It's, it's, it's not a novel view whatsoever. For example, I, I quote Matthew Poole from the 17th century a lot. His commentary says this. He did not really forego neither was it possible he should, anything of his divine glory, being the Son of God still without any robbery or seizure of property. It's just who he is. He's not taking divinity upon himself. He just is God, okay? Equal to his Father in power and glory. See what he says? He goes, look... Whatever we think of the incarnation, we can't say divine glory was no longer the sun's. But why do we say veiled in flesh, the Godhead see? Hail the incarnate deity. Veil. It's a good word. Um, You might have heard concealed as well. It's a synonym for that. Um, You probably have not heard the the term crypsis, which means veiled or concealed. So if anybody ever uses it, you can say, heard that word before. What do they mean by this? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, or Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, everlasting Lord, offspring veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Okay, 168, hymn 168, second line. That's all scriptural stuff right there. And I think if you're not getting the Philippians thing and you get that, then you're getting the Philippians thing. If you think you're not getting Philippians and what I'm trying to say, but you understand that, you go, yep, everlasting Lord, form of God, Offspring of the virgin's womb, form of man. We distinguish. But how many, how many persons are we dealing with when we're talking about the incarnate son? One, remember last week? One person, one agent who acts, one who, two, remember, natures, 
It's the way Christians have talked for a long time to agencies by which the agent does his operations or works. So he's both God and man, divinity and humanity, two natures united in this person who is everlasting Lord and now identifying himself as a man. I'll have more to say about that second sermon. But methinks, even though it's 1040, I've said enough. Because Trinity and Incarnation are tough doctrines. But they are the distinguishing revealed mysteries that set Christianity apart from all other religions. And if we get Jesus wrong, we'll die in our sins. If we confess him mysteriously to be the I am and also one of us, for us, and for our salvation. If all we can say is, you know, I believe what those old creeds say and what these hymns are saying. I can't explain the scripture to you, but I can read those things to you and say, I can't parse it all out, but that's what I believe. Lord, help my, not my unbelief, but help me figure out the details and put the pieces together and more and longer I live. So sometimes we, can, we actually confess better um, than we realize. Matter of fact, you remember Peter, but who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you keep reading in Matthew 16, Jesus starts teaching, telling disciples, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer under the, under the onslaughts of the Pharisees. And I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. Remember what Peter said? On one side, out of his side of his mouth, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. A few moments later, God forbid it, Lord. Remember what Jesus said? Huh. Isn't that weird? You go, Peter, you idiot. Did this God forbid it, Lord, Cancel out this glorious Christological confession. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Okay? It's not just the words that Jesus spoke or the words that we might read on the page of Scripture. We need actually more than that. We need a top-down, from heaven, uh, illumination, a, a light has to go off in a dark place, our souls, so that we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's Paul's language. That's, that's going on in Peter when he's there. By the way, don't want to give bad press to Peter. Keep reading the Bible. Peter becomes one of the heroes, okay? Because Jesus had, had promised to him, hey, when I leave, this, there's going to be the special endowment that helps you recall what I said, teach new things, and say things about the future, and... You know, the texts I mentioned in a couple of them last week in John, oh, the disciples had no idea what Jesus meant by what he said. But after the resurrection, they were able to do that after that endowment, okay? 
So Peter got this revealed to him, and then he says the dumb thing, You're not, God forbid it, Lord, that you should go die. So does that undo his wrong doctrine of the necessity of the death of Christ? Does that undo his profession? Do we say now, oh, he, he just lost his salvation when he said that? Or do we say, he's kind of like me? putting the pieces together. Now, I have the entire New Testament. I got the, that on him. He didn't have all that. But he's wrestling with the words and the deeds of our Lord in light of what the Old Testament taught. And he didn't get it all at once, but he got something very important. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you get that right and mess up some other things, you won't die in your sins. And that's what I don't want anybody to die in their sins. So come to Christ and, and be saved and then figure out the doctrinal details slowly but surely over time. Sometimes, by the way, you figure out doctrinal details by paying attention to the hymnody, the hymns. Why do we sing the doxology and the Gloria Patri every week? Because you're going to die a good Trinitarian, either through my teaching and preaching or through the hymn the singing of it. So may the Lord help us to respond correctly to these truths. And we're going to do it by singing to him after I pray. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. There are heavy teachings in it, in both the Old and New Testament. And this one, God manifested in the flesh, the word becoming flesh, he being rich, becoming poor, the form of God, assuming form of servant. This is a heavy doctrine, but it's in the word of God. And if we get it wrong, we die in our sins. If we get it right, our sins are forgiven. We're going to be glorified after the pattern of the glorified humanity of our Lord. Help us to sort these things through, think them through, love you more in light of the truth, live for you better, more zealously, and help us to sing now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.